thank all of you for being here tonight. If, uh, if you know of someone, a family member, a friend who's going through hard times, please encourage them to come to the series that starts this Sunday, but also encourage them for the next two weeks after tonight to come to the mine on Tuesday night, because we're going to be looking at passages dealing with how do we handle, how do we navigate, how do we get through hard times. I want to start out tonight, though, in the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 17. We're not going to be in Judges long. We're not going to, in a sense, go through the rest of the book of Judges because, as we've already seen, the book of Judges is a very, very dark book dealing with the darkest days of Israel's history. So when you get past Samson, it really goes downhill from there. And frankly, I just don't want to get into it. I, I, I want to get on something a little bit more uplifting, if you will. Now, there's a time and a place for all Scripture. And we can certainly be instructed and learn from Judges 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. But I think what we're going to touch on tonight will give you enough of a glimpse into the what I call the spiritual bankruptcy of Israel at the time that you and I begin to see, oh my goodness, no wonder things are just so bad in the nation of Israel. And it ties in with sometimes why we have difficulty in navigating hard times. Because God wants to give us clarity. And many times in our lives, like we're going to see here in the nation of Israel, there is nothing clear at all with people. There's confusion, there's fuzziness, there's cloudiness. They don't know where to take the next step, and they're just sort of trying to figure it out as they go along. And yet the Bible says of itself that God gave us His Word so that it would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, so that we could truly have clarity knowing how to live our lives, When things happen, how do we react to them? How do we deal with them? How do we get through those? The Bible is very clear. So how tragic is it when we come to Judges 17 and we read these words? There was a man named Micah from the Ephraimite hill country. He said to his mother, You know the 1,100 pieces of silver which were stolen from you about which you pronounced a curse? Uh, I stole it. But now I'm giving it back to you. His mother said, May the Lord reward you, my son. When he gave back to his mother the 1,100 pieces of silver that he stole from his own mother, his mother said, I solemnly dedicate this silver to the Lord. That would be good, except let's keep reading. It will be for my son's benefit. We will use it to make a carved image and a metal image. When he gave the silver back to his mother, she took 200 pieces of silver to a silversmith who made them into a carved image and a metal image. She then put them in Micah's house. Now this man Micah owned a shrine, which in essence is just a word that means a house of idols or a house of false gods. He made an ephod and some personal idols and then hired one of his sons to serve as a priest And so the writer at this point says, in those days Israel had no king. Each man did what he considered to be right. You just read those six verses. I don't know about you, but I'm just, I'm reading that going, what? What? As if you think it can't get any weirder or worse, and then you keep reading and you go, what? It, it's just really bad. And it's almost like, even though it's, it, there's been some dark places through Judges up to this point, it's almost like when you get to Judges chapter 17 after Samson, you know you're walking on different, a different ground. It's like somewhere along the line you went from pavement to gravel. And even though you, you really didn't know exactly where the pavement ended and the gravel began, but your feet are telling you, I'm on different ground here. This is really bad. And you see the spiritual confusion in the nation. I mean, first of all, here's one comment. 
As a home goes, so goes a society. So one of the things we see here in Judges 17 is, here's a picture of a home that just craziness. You know, a son stealing from his mother because she pronounces a curse. He gives the money back. They make idols out of it. And, 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 and so the home is just all upside down. And so we understand in our society, as a home goes, so goes society. So you see here, here's a home that just lacks any kind of clarity at all. Here's a home filled with people, just like in the nation of Israel, who think because they've walked so far away from God for so long, they don't even know what they're doing is wrong. They, they don't have any clarity to their lives. They somehow think it, it's okay to say, we're worshiping the Lord and we're going to take this money and go down to the silversmith and get him to melt this all down and we're going to fill our house with all these false gods and false idols and somehow we're thinking that that's worshiping the Lord and God's going to bless that? That's how deluded they were. That's how deceived they were. And yet, they were Jews. All they would have had to do is recall the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt make no graven images. They broke the first two commandments, and somehow they think, we're doing what God wants us to do. This is the state of Israel at this time in Israel's history. I mean, it's just crazy how bad it has got. It shows the depth of confusion that people can go when they forsake the truth of God and what he has revealed and they sort of make it up as they go along. Which can I do? That's what a lot of people are doing today. They don't know what they should be doing or how they should be living. So they're just sort of making it up as they go along. God never intended for human beings to live that way. He always intended for us to live, to worship, to relate according to his revelation. Not according to what we think is best in certain situations. Which is what verse 6 is saying. In those days they had no king. And so they just all just made it up as they went along and did what they thought was right. No objective standard here at all. All subjective. Well, this is what I think's good, so I'll do that. The other person thinks, well, that, this is what I think's good. And you can understand, just like in a society, when everybody just starts doing what they think is good, what you think is good is probably going to hurt me, and what I think is good is probably going to, because I'm going to look out for me, you're going to look out for you, and there's no objectivity to it at all. And that's exactly what was happening in Israel. I want to make a comment, too, about the phrase in verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. It's not like the author of Judges is saying, well, a king would have solved everything. He's implying in that phrase that the right kind of leadership in Israel would have made a difference. It would have influenced the people. In other words, not just any king, but a king who would have sought to live for God, a godly king, one who would have taught the people God's standards and revelation. One who would have upheld God's standards and revelation. That king, those leaders, would have made a difference in Israel, just like today. Just like any time in history. That's why the Bible says that when the righteous are in leadership, we rejoice. Because we understand that as a home goes, so goes society. As our leaders go and what kind of leaders a nation has, so the society will go. And we see a void of leadership in every level of our society today. So it's no wonder that we're suffering the way that we are. Because in every facet of society in every fabric of our society there has been a lack of leadership at every level that for much of what we're dealing with has caused this or been the cause and effect of what we're feeling today in our own country and around the world it's exactly what was happening in the book of judges and here's the thing they were going around as God's people, remember, who God had revealed his mind and his will and his word to. And they were going around going, I don't know what to do. Do you know what to do? No, I don't know what to do. Let's just do what we think's right. Okay. And God had given them 
his revelation. The problem was not that God had not told them how they should live, how they should worship, how they should relate to each other. They ignored it and started just doing what they wanted to do. In fact, to illustrate that, let's leave the book of Judges. And let's go over to one more Old Testament book before we dive into the New Testament tonight. Go to the book of Micah. Let me tell you where Micah's at. The easiest way to find Micah is actually to go to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and then start going backwards. Because Micah is one of the 12 what we call minor prophets, the little books at the end of the Old Testament. And so go to Matthew and then go back through Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, then through Zechariah, and then after you get through Zechariah, you will come to a little book called Haggai, then you'll go through Zephaniah, then you'll go through Habakkuk, then you'll go through Nahum, and then you'll find Micah. Start with Matthew and just go back a few books. Let me just say this too, since we're in one of the, what we call minor prophets, just the way we sort of divide the Bible out. Minor not in its importance. Minor in that as you look at Old Testament prophets, some books are larger than others. Not more important, just larger. So the major prophets of the Old Testament would be books like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah. They were all at least 12, some of them 50 and 60 chapters long. When you get to Hosea and you go from Hosea to Malachi, those 12 prophets, they're probably four or five chapters. Some of them are 10 or 12, but most of them are smaller. That's why we call them minor. But again, minor not in message, minor not in importance, minor just in the quantity of their message. And when you come to Micah, go to chapter 6. I just want to set this up for a moment before I read beginning at verse 6 of Micah chapter 6. Here again is what was happening. In Israel's history, God had revealed what he expected. And yet Israel, just like back in the book of Judges, was trying to make this up. And they were going around saying, well, God, we would do what you want if you just told us, if you were just clear. See, God, we're just a little confused. We're just a little fuzzy. We're, we're just a little uh, cloudy on, on what you expect and what you want from us. In fact, they got a little snippy with God. Uh, here in Micah chapter 6, look at verse 6. Here's the Jews saying to God, and you, you, can, you can hear the attitude through these words. With what should I enter the Lord's presence? With what should I bow before the sovereign God? Should I enter his presence with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Will the Lord accept a thousand rams or ten thousand streams of olive oil? Should I give him my firstborn child as payment for my rebellion, my offspring, my own flesh, and my blood for my sin? Here's the prophet's response. And it was God's response. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord really wants from you. He wants you to promote justice to be faithful, and to live obediently before your God. There it is. Again, the prophet just reminded the people. They're like, well, we don't know how we should approach God. We don't know. We just, he's just not been clear. We're confused. And the prophet Micah says, he's already told you. You're just ignoring it. Hundreds of years, he told you what to do. Promote justice. Be faithful. And just... Be obedient. But instead of focusing on what the Lord had already told them, they were trying to make up always something new. And God said, I can't give you any new revelation because you're not following through with what I've already given you. And here's a reminder to all of us. God wants us to live what we know. And God doesn't want what we don't know to do, to interfere with what we do know to do. That was sort of where Israel was, you see. We don't know what to do. Yeah, you do. He's told you many times, just do what you know to do. Live what you know you should be doing. So often as Christians, we're, we're 
burning up emotional BTUs every day, worrying about things that are out of our control, focusing our energy on the things that we really don't know, and yet here's plainly what God has told us to do, and instead of focusing on what we know to do, And what we know he's already told us, we're worried about what he hasn't told us yet. And God is calling his people back, just live what you know. Don't let what you don't know to do to interfere with what you already know to do. In fact, as I tell it, and this this is not meant as a discouragement for Bible study, all right? But if Jeff Royce didn't learn one more thing from the Bible for the rest of my earthly life, I would still have a full-time job and focus just putting into practice every day what Jeff Royce already knows Jeff Royce should be doing every day. And that's the way all Christians should be focused. We should be focused on what we know. And if God wants to reveal something that we don't know, That's fine, but more than likely, and this is what the Bible teaches, he will reveal what we don't know while we're doing what we do know. Micah. Then come over to the New Testament Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. To John's Gospel, chapter 4. And I want to begin at verse 19, where Jesus is in the middle of a conversation with a woman of Samaria by the well. And I don't have time to set this all up, but this is an amazing encounter between the Lord of glory and this woman of Samaria. The point that I want to make for our talk tonight is simply this. Jesus is reminding her here, again, about the clarity that God gives to people who truly desire to worship him and live for him. God does not want us groping around, confused and cloudy about how to live our lives. He is very clear about these things. He just simply says, I've already given it to you. Why don't you focus on it? And so notice what Jesus says, beginning in chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, verse 19. They start having this discussion about religion. Which isn't that the way a lot of times discussions go when you and I might be trying to talk to somebody about God or about Jesus or even about coming to church. They always want to get on religion. That's where this woman was going as well. But Jesus wouldn't let her go there. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain and you people say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you do not know. I want to stop there because that's important. Because that ties back to where we began today in the book of Judges 17. They were worshiping. They thought they were worshiping God. They thought they were serving God. The tragedy of judges and the tragedy of where we're here even right now is that these people thought they were right on and yet they were totally off. How tragic is that? To live your life thinking, I got this down and you totally missed the mark. And here's why. Because Jesus says, We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. God is spirit and the people who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. See, we live in a climate today, even within the church, where truth is downplayed. Let, can't we just all love each other and get along and let's just throw truth out the window? Well, that might sound good and politically correct, but it's certainly not biblical. It goes even against the teaching of Jesus. Why? Because I need truth in my life in order to have the clarity that God wants me to have. And as we're going to see in chapter 8 of John, so that I can truly be free. Because if I'm living my life on lies, 
and I'm not living my life on the foundation of truth, I will never experience the freedom of being all that God created me to be. I must have truth in my life. And yet people want to reject truth. They want it as the book of Judges. I want to make this up as I go along. I want to be my own standard of what's right and wrong. I want to do this subjective religion. And hey, I'll even include Jesus in my sort of, you know, have it build your own religion thing. You know, I'm not anti-Jesus. I'll bring Jesus in, but I've got Jesus and all these other things. I got Jesus plus all these other things. It's what we call in theology syncretism. S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M. It simply means a hodgepodge of all kinds of different beliefs. And really that's where our world is. And that's why the world is headed towards this global, ecumenical, let's just all choose to believe whatever we want to believe and that's okay. No, Jesus said. Jesus said, if you're going to worship me, if you're going to live for me, if you're going to relate, you and I have to have revelation. We've got to have that objective standard that God has given us, that truth to live by, so that we can be clear, so that we're not scratching our heads every day going, what in the world should I do? How should I deal with this situation? How should I react to this hard time in my life? How do I get through this struggle? How do I deal with my kids? How do I improve my marriage? It's all here, folks. And Jesus says, if you want it, go after it. But it's there. It's all there. God hasn't given us everything we want to know. But God, from Genesis to Revelation in this Bible, has given us everything we need to know for life and godliness, Peter says. We need nothing else. The Bible is sufficient. It is truth. It is truth that will set you and I free. And if we're going to live for God and worship God, we've got to do it His way. We can't just say because we're sincere that that makes up for it. No, it's great to be sincere. It's great to be passionate. It's great to be zealous. But if it's not truth... It's unacceptable to God. Because when you and I live for God and we worship God and we relate in our lives to other human beings, we've got to do it according to His revealed truth. And see, this is what was missing in Israel throughout the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They had the truth. God had revealed Himself and clearly, like Micah said, He's already told you what you should be doing. But we ignore it. And then we wonder why we get to points in our life where everything seems so cloudy and fuzzy and I lack clarity. I hear that verse out of Psalm 119 where your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, but I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue what path to go down. I don't have a clue what next step to take in my life. And can I just say... What's so tragic about that is is it doesn't have to be that way. God doesn't want his children just trying to figure it out on their own and groping around going, well, I guess this is what I should do. God doesn't want us to live that way. God wants us to live with confidence and assurance that the steps we are taking and the decisions we are making and the choices that we are, we are making are all absolutely in line with what he wants so that we can live with power and confidence in our lives rather than, I don't know, do you know? No, I don't know. It's one of the saddest things is to see a group of Christians even who are, who are in a group sitting around talking about maybe say the times in which we live. And, and sometimes you hear no hope even within a group of Christians. Do you know what we should be doing? No, I don't know. Do you know? No, I don't know. Wow. To me, that even makes things like the mine, not, again, not that the mine is the answer, but things like the mine and what we can provide, it shows how much more important those things and how relevant they are and how needed they are today because even Christians... Frankly, we don't know this as well as we should. And we need to somehow begin to take those steps to learn what God has already revealed to us so that we have the answers to life. Go over to John chapter 8. 
wow, it's 20 to 8. Boy, did I. Yikes. So I'm just going to pick it up in John 8, 31, when Jesus said to those Judeans who had believed in him, if you continue to follow my teaching, you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they replied, and have never been anyone's slaves. Again, see how deceptive? Not have been anybody's slaves. Do they not know their own history? They were slaves to the Egyptians, the Persians, the Medes, I mean, the Babylonians, you name it. They were slaves their whole history. We've never been anybody's slave. Wow. How can you say you will become free? Jesus answered them. I tell you the solemn truth, verse 34. Everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the family forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be really free. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you want to kill me because my teaching makes no progress among you. I'm telling you the things that I have seen while with the Father. As for you, here again, practice the things you've heard from the Father. Do what you already know to do, Jesus says, because in doing the truth that you already know, you will become free to be all that God created you and I to be. And that's the goal of God in every human being's life, that we might experience true freedom in our lives and not have anything gripping our lives and holding us down from becoming and experiencing all that God has for us, even on this side of heaven. Well, that was the introduction tonight, folks. I want you to go over now to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Because we're going to look at some truth tonight that I think helps us in hard times. If someone was to ask me, Pastor Jeff, what's a passage that I could go to during hard times to help me in my struggles? I would immediately tell them, turn to Hebrews chapter 12, the first four verses. And we're just going to look at those for our last 20 minutes together tonight. And maybe this is for you. Maybe this is for you to use to encourage someone else. And next week... And the following week, we're going to be looking at a passage in the book of First Peter at how to get through hard times. I hope you'll come back the next two weeks and invite somebody to come with you. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, therefore, and again, when we read the Bible, therefore is there for a reason. And therefore is always telling us to go back to what has just been said. And so we could go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 11. But in the immediate context, I think he's pointing mainly back to Hebrews chapter 11 because of what he's about to say here. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and I believe those are the people that he's just mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. We must get rid of every weight and the sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race set out for us. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set out for him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Think of him who endured such opposition against himself by sinners so that you may not grow weary in your souls and give up. You have not yet resisted to the point of bloodshed in your struggle against sin. First of all, in these four verses, there's one main verb. There's one main thought that the writer wants to get across. Everything else is supporting the one thought. And the one thought is this in verse 1. Run with endurance. He is picturing the Christian life as a race. And it is a race that we need to exert some effort. Notice he doesn't say jog with endurance. Notice he doesn't say walk with endurance. He's choosing the word run, which was very familiar to his readers who were very much into the Olympic and Ismithian games back in those days. They were very much into athletics like we are today. He says run. And the word that he uses there is a word that speaks of exertion. If I'm going to run, it, it, it's, I'm going to have to expend some energy to run. Walk, yeah, a little bit. Jog a little bit. Run, I've got to expend some energy. So first of all, he's reminding us that in this 
race of life and especially the Christian life, I've got to exert some energy if I'm going to get through with endurance the race that is set out for me, the course that is ahead of me. Run with endurance. So he's reminding us that as we run, that the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Therefore, we have to adopt that mindset of a marathon runner over a sprinter. A sprinter is going to have a totally different approach to the race than a marathon person is going to have to a race. Marathon runner knows, I can't burn it all out in the first couple miles because I got at least probably 20, 26.2 miles in a full marathon to go. I got to pace myself. And I've got to learn to run with endurance, which means there's going to be times where I'm going to hit walls and I'm going to feel like giving up. It's going to hurt. I've got to learn to push through those walls and I've got to keep on going because this is a race, the Christian life, that God doesn't want me to ever give up or throw in the towel or quit. God wants me to continue to run this race until the day I meet Jesus Christ. So I've got to adopt that mindset of running with endurance. With that said, then let's go back up to the beginning of verse 1. The first encouragement he gives us to run this race with endurance are these great cloud of witnesses that he's enumerated in Hebrews chapter 11. And the reason he gives us this great host of names and people from Old Testament history is he's telling us they bear witness to us of God's faithfulness and of the effectiveness of living a life of faith and trust in God. Now, there are some who look at this passage and here's what they get in mind. They think that all the people who've died before them are sitting up there in the stands in heaven looking down, cheering them on with little cheerleader outfits going, yay, Jeff, go, Jeff, all that. It's not what this verse means. The word witness in verse 1 is the word martyr in the Greek language. It's not a passive spectator who's sitting up there in heaven. They got better things to do when they get up there than watching our lives down here on earth. What he is saying is their life and the way they live their life and how God used them bears witness to God's faithfulness and to the effectiveness of living by faith. And he wants to use that. And it's just like, if we know somebody else has done it before us, then we can do it too. And so he's right off the bat saying, listen, you're not the first one to have to run this race with endurance. I've just spent a whole chapter of Hebrews 11 telling you about countless examples of other people who ran the race before you and they made it. And so he's telling us, if they made it, you can make it too. And I'm just here to say the same thing. If they made it, we can make it too. We can run the race with endurance because we've got the same God, the same Word of God, the same Holy Spirit of God in us that they had to help them run the race with endurance as well. So let's run the race with endurance. Secondly, the second encouragement is, verse 1, we must get rid of every weight. A runner doesn't want excess weight. And so that's why runners are in shape because do you ever see flabby runners? I don't. And so, first of all, he can be talking about, as a runner, good picture. You know, they want to get rid of all their excess weight, but then they don't want to have a lot of other stuff on either. In fact, don't repeat this, but in Bible times, when they ran these races, they ran naked. I mean, they got rid of all the weight. But What Paul is saying here is really true. He's simply reminding us of this. Because I want you to notice, he differentiates weights from sin. Sin we know is bad. Then why does he say weight? Because sometimes the weight that we've got to get rid of in our life in order to run this Christian life with endurance is something that's good, but it's still weighing us down. See, sometimes, in order to run with endurance, I've got to get rid of some good things in my life. that They're good in and of themselves, but they're weighing me down from running with endurance. Paul says, or excuse me, the writer of Hebrews says, run with endurance by getting rid of those weights. Now, I'm not going to play Holy Spirit. I'm not going to play God. 
But I am going to teach you the word of God, and I'm going to say tonight, because I said this to myself, is there a weight in my life that God wants me to get rid of? Is one of the reasons why I'm starting to lose my focus, and I'm starting to get fatigued, and I'm starting to even uh, get some emotional exhaustion in this Christian life, is because I'm carrying around a weight that God doesn't want me to carry, and God wants me to lay that weight down. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your care upon God because he cares for you. And God doesn't want us to be carrying around weights that he never intended for us to carry. Lay that weight down. Even if it's something good, if it's keeping you and I from running the Christian race with endurance, then the writer of Hebrews and God himself would say, lay it down. Secondly, not only get rid of the weight, get rid of the sin that clings so closely. Notice he's not talking about just all kinds. He's just saying that I believe in every person's life right now there may be one particular sin that's, that's clinging. It's like that dryer sheet that you can't get off your clothes or something. And, and, you, and it's it just hanging there. And it's, it's wearing on you and it's weighing you down. And you and I know through the revelation of the Spirit of God and through the Word of God that there's something in our life that God would say is sinful that He wants us to throw off by His power because it's keeping us from running the race with endurance. It's beginning to cause us to, you know, lose our air. It's beginning to cause us to, our knees are starting to, get a little weak. Our arms are starting to get a little weary. And God is clearly telling us this is that sin that continues to cling and just hang on you. Get it off. Again, not in our own power, but in the power that Jesus supplies. Because remember, God never asks us to do anything that he doesn't give us the power to do it. And then he says, run with endurance the race set out for us. And by using that language, he's saying, as a runner should, keep your eyes on what's before you, not on what's behind you. There is a course ahead of you. Runners are never effective if they keep looking over their shoulder. Runners are never effective if, you know, runners have to keep their eye on the goal and on the course that is ahead of them. Some, sometimes you and I start looking beside of us, Sometimes we start looking behind us and we start losing that endurance and that speed and that intensity that we need to run the Christian life with endurance. The author says, don't forget about these witnesses that witness to God's faithfulness and to the effectiveness of faith. And don't forget to lay aside every weight. And don't forget to lay aside that that sin that right now is clinging to you. And don't forget to keep your eyes always looking forward, never looking backward or beside of you. Verse 2, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. It's great to have human examples like he's already shown us in Hebrews chapter 11. It's great. But the greatest example and the most important example and the one person above everyone else that we need to keep our eyes focused on as we are running this race we call the Christian life is Jesus Christ. And when he says keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, he's telling us to get our eyes off of everyone and everything else and plant them on Jesus alone. Now think about that. Because you and I all know that there were times in our life where we were running the Christian life and something, some circumstance came into our life. And it probably wasn't a good one. And we start looking at the circumstance rather than keeping our eyes on Jesus. A great story in the Bible about how the importance of keeping our eyes on Christ is a story of Peter walking on the water. He got out of the boat when Jesus said, yeah, I want you to do this, Peter. And as long as Peter kept his eyes fixed on Jesus, Peter was walking on water. He was walking above his circumstances. He was doing something that no human being was supposed to be able to do because he kept his eyes fixed on Jesus. But as soon as he took his eyes off Jesus and put them on the waves and the storm around him, he began to sink. And that's exactly what happens to us. And that's why. 
the author of Hebrews says, if you and I want to run this race with endurance, if we want to get through hard times, if we want to get through these things that are so painful and so full of struggle, keep your eyes completely focused away from everyone and everything else and keep your eyes planted on Jesus Christ alone. There's an inspiration there in Jesus. Why? Because he is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And notice the writer says that for the joy set out for him, he endured the cross. The cross. So much we could say if we had time tonight about the cross. Only the dregs of society in Jesus' day were crucified. Crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of the lowest of society. And yet Jesus went to the cross. Crucifixion was a horrible way to die. Maybe the most horrible way that's ever been invented by man to kill another person. Because crucifixion was death by asphyxiation. That after they had scourged you and ripped your back apart and even they would tell us that internal organs could be laid bare by scourging, they would nail you to the cross and you would be there and literally have to pull yourself up to get enough oxygen in your lungs to keep breathing and stay alive and then get to the point where you could no longer hold yourself up and have to slump back down. That's why they would at times break the legs of criminals because if they broke their legs, they couldn't push themselves back up to that position to get any more air into their lungs and they would die. So here, agonizing, up and back, laid bare back, rubbing up against a splintered cross. Jesus endured that because of the joy that was set out for him. See, Jesus is giving us the example that we can look past our present circumstances to future glory. That we can look past present pain to God's promises. And if we don't learn to look past where we are to what's coming down the road that is so good and glorious for us, we will lose steam in this race called the Christian life. We will get so caught up in what we're experiencing now that we will forget about the wonder that God has for us down the road. And yet we sang about it tonight. How great thou art. One day we're going to be sitting in the presence of Jesus in heaven for all of eternity. And folks, if you're a Christian, this is the only hell you will ever know. You have a forever ahead of you. And notice, he uses a very important word, for the joy set. It's sure. This isn't no pie in the sky, by and by, fairy tale, myth, something that's made up. God has set that joy and that wonderful future out there just as sure as he set the exaltation of Christ going back to heaven with the Father in front of Jesus. So he could even endure the cross and all the insults and all the shame and all the beating and all the blood and all the torture and all the rejection and all the betrayal because Jesus knew what was coming and Jesus is teaching us tonight that's how we've got to attack life as well. What we may be going through right now is horrendous. It may be hard. It may be hurtful. But my friends, something wonderful is coming and we've got to keep our eyes on the prize that is coming for us. Notice he goes on, disregarding its shame. There was nothing more shameful than being crucified. And yet in a weird sort of way, the the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus turned the insults and shames of the cross inside out. He disregarded. He looked at the cross and the shame of the cross as being of very little value. And here's what was more valuable. See, again, sometimes we get caught up in what's valuable, what's really valuable. And we've got to keep our value system and our priorities right. That's what helped Jesus keep running with endurance. That's what helped the other people in Hebrews 11 keep running. Because they kept their priorities right. They kept their values right. They weren't looking at the temporal. They weren't looking at the here and now. They were looking at the eternal. Many of the promises that God gave them, they never realized. But they knew that they were coming one day. And so they died in faith. 
never receiving the things that were promised, but knew that they were coming one day. That's why he says in Hebrews 11, Abraham was looking for that country one day that God had promised, but he never experienced it here on earth. But he knew one day when he got to heaven, there was the country that God promised him. That's what he's saying here. And so he's taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. So verse 3, think of him. When you're going through hard times, when I'm going through hard times, you know one of the things we've got to do besides keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus is think about Jesus. We've got to quit thinking about our struggles and we've got to think about Jesus because his example and his life will inspire and will empower us. Notice, think of him who endured such opposition against himself by sinners so that you may not grow weary in your souls and give up. See, God promises, if I set my mind on Christ, if I put my mind on Christ, that God will empower me and encourage me and refresh me and revive me so that I will keep going. Because if I don't, as he says in verse 3, I can get to the point in my life where I just wave the white flag. I'm tired, Lord. I'm growing weary. I'm emotionally done. I can't go another. If, if, I, if I run this race with endurance and I put this truth, I'm not trying to figure this out on my own. I put this truth into practice in my life and I do what I know I should be doing. God says, you won't grow weary and faint and give up. You'll keep on running with endurance. You'll keep on running the race and you won't quit. To show you how bad it is, just in the last couple weeks here at Cornerstone, I have talked to more people who are suicidal, who are hopeless, who are ready to give up on God and life than probably I ever talked to in a two-week period in 25 years of being a pastor. They need to hear the truth of Hebrews 12. God doesn't want you to quit. And you and I don't have to quit. We can have our strength renewed through God if we just put these things into practice. Lay aside the weights. Lay aside the sin. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep thinking about him. Notice verse 4. Close with this. You've not yet resisted to the point of bloodshed in your struggle against sin. And many take that as you haven't given up your life yet. You haven't been martyred. So it could be worse. I think it could be from another angle though. Take you back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Where Jesus is encouraging his disciples. Pray, pray, pray. Because you're never going to get through what's coming if you don't pray. They would rather sleep than pray. And the Bible says as Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. That he was praying so intensely that he sweat drops of blood. They tell us it's physically possible for our capillaries to pop to the point where our sweat and, and blood mix. That's how intense Jesus was in praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the reason I think that it could tie in here is because he's talking here about you've not yet resisted to the point of this and struggling against sin. And I think he could also be drawing them back to the importance of prayer and how prayer is a key to perseverance in our life. How Jesus encouraged his disciples to pray or else they weren't going to persevere and they didn't because they didn't pray. And how Jesus taught us in Luke 18 that men and women ought always to pray and not to faint or give up or lose heart. So it all ties in. That I believe my prayer life is directly connected, proportional, parallel, name whatever, to my perseverance. You show me a Christian who's praying, and I mean praying, even when they don't feel like praying, they are praying, and they're getting other people to pray, and, and maybe they're asking for people to pray with them, and they're just praying. I will show you someone who may be going through some really deep waters, but they will run with endurance because they're praying. But you show me a Christian who's given up on prayer and stopped praying or struggling in their prayer life, and I'll show you a Christian who's probably starting to get pretty winded. And maybe even thinking about raising the white flag 
and giving up. Don't give up, my friends. God has given us the truth we need not only to be set free, but to run this race called the Christian life with endurance. Listen, before I close in prayer tonight, one other thing. I think getting into the Bible is so important and so necessary, especially today. And I don't like to self-promote, but I want to take the opportunity to do it only because I run into so many people here on the campus that have no idea what I'm here for and what I do and all that. So I'm here to say this. On Sundays, I teach two small churches. Everybody here is welcome to come to those because we just get into the Bible and we study it. At 8 o'clock, the small church in A104, right over here down the hallway, is called Singles and Others, which means it's for singles and anybody, okay? Some, are, some who come are here tonight. Everyone is welcome, and we are just like the mine. You can start anytime. Each week stands on its own. We are finishing up right now a great study in Colossians, but the day or the Sunday after Mother's Day, May 17th, we're starting a new study in the book of Titus at 8 o'clock on Sunday mornings. I'd love to have you if you want to come and get more Bible. At 9.15, right after that same room over here, my wife and I teach a coupled in Christ class. Can I tell you another? Marriages are struggling like never before. And I don't care even if you have a good marriage. All of our marriages need constant encouragement and nurture. If you know of a marriage or a husband and wife that could use some biblical encouragement, please Tell them about Coupled in Christ at 9.15 on Sunday mornings. I would love to have them in that class. In fact, as you leave tonight, there's going to be some gals and guys in the back, and they're going to have one of those cards that we pass out every once in a while to promote certain things. If you know of someone that you would like to invite to Coupled in Christ, I don't have any for the singles and others, but if you'd like to have that for yourself to remind you of when it is and where it is, or you would like to invite somebody You know a marriage that's struggling or a husband and wife that could use getting in on Sunday and getting some good encouragement from the Word of God, please take one of those and use it this week to invite them to come. I would love to have those rooms packed out on Sunday as we study the Word of God and learn the truth that can set us free. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your truth, for this book that gives us clarity as we live life. That we don't have to go through life confused, dark, cloudy, fuzzy about what the next step is and what path do we take and where do we go. You have clearly given us all the instructions we need. We just need to familiarize ourselves with those instructions and we just need to put them into practice and do what we know you've called us to do. Help us, Lord, not to allow what we don't know to do to interfere with what we do know to do. And take this group of people, even from here tonight, and begin to use us to encourage others on our church campus, in our community, in this whole Phoenix area, and even around the world, Lord. Use these people to reach out And to be instruments of hope and endurance and perseverance and encouragement in people's homes and marriages and lives today. Because of the tough times that we are going through and people not knowing how to get through it. God, use us to to help. And God, we'll just give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, have a great week. See you next week.